The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. It's made possible in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual, Cumberland Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. State and local governments spend about $4 trillion each year. That's trillion with a T. Did you ever ask yourself, where does all that money come from? And where does it go? Who manages it? And what do citizens and taxpayers have to show for it? In this podcast, we explore the budgets, bonds, and bureaucrats at the heart of state and local government finance. This is the Public Money Pod. Welcome back to the Public Money Pod. I'm Justin Marlowe, joined as always by chicken connoisseur and bona fide fiscal policy expert, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. Thanks, Justin. I have a, like a, a chicken family update. As as everybody who listens to this pod knows, I, I have these two silky chickens. And one of them, as it turns out, was a rooster. And I was trying to figure out what to do with that because I wanted egg layers. But I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll just roll the dice, see what happens with this one rooster. Uh, well, the other week, I guess the other the other silky was just a little bit slower developmentally. <laughs> Turns out she was also a he because it started crowing <laughs> as well. And I thought, great, now I've got two silky roosters. So I Googled the situation and it turns out silky roosters actually are one of the few breeds that can get along well, so they can stay together. And I thought, well, should I get rid of both? Should I keep both? And, and unfortunately slash fortunately, I've, I've gotten attached to them. So, so I'm keeping both and, and who knows, I may be, may be breeding chickens this coming spring. So we'll, we'll find out. I'll keep you, keep you posted. <laughs> Wow, the best laid plans. Uh, uh, my goodness, yeah. that's. I suppose that would. We, we talk. Uh, we talk a lot about capital investment here. I suppose if you, that would be a big step in that direction if you got into the breeding side <laughs> of things. It sure would. It sure would. And given the price of eggs these days, I mean, who knows? This may be actually a good business decision too. <laughs> A, a serendipitously good business decision, <laughs> given what's going on with eggs. Very interesting. Well, so we are uh, here today to to talk about the connection between uh, accounting and accountability, which sounds like uh, a bit of an abstract connection, but one that we wanted to make here on the pod. We're going to be joined a little bit later on by LaShawn Ross, who is the uh, Director of Human Resources for the city of Plano, Texas, and someone who's had a long and storied career in local government management and has uh, taught us all a lot about how the problems we often experience inside of organizations, particularly when it relates to human resources, are are often people and accountability questions as much as they are policy and process and procedure questions. And so looking forward to some great insights from her. And in in thinking about uh, that conversation and some of the themes that we explore here on the pod, the, the first thing that comes to mind, of course, is that we talk about accounting and accountability often as very different things, and even though they ought to maybe be a little bit better connected than they are. The world of accounting, all about uh, financial reporting in particular, 
standardizing the way that we think about financial information, the way that we analyze financial information, all with the goal of trying to use public resources more accountably. And yet sometimes the, the accountability question uh, gets lost in that. We don't often uh, have clear agreement on what, what a good outcome indicator, what a good performance indicator might be. And so in the public finance world, we're kind of in that debate, but also to some degree on the outside of that debate looking in. And so having an opportunity to, to talk a little bit more about what that connection between accounting and accountability and the, the human resources side of local government generally, but finance in particular is a, a really good opportunity. Now, Liz, I know you've uh, have definitely in your work talked on many occasions about accountability and how to think about it and how to measure it. What are you seeing out there right now as the particularly big challenges with respect to uh, accountability in the budgeting and finance space? Yeah, I think one of the most striking examples I can think of in the last couple of years with with this idea of of keeping track of of not just how much we're spending, but whether or not it's working as intended. And uh, so the the striking example is one is an example where it didn't quite work at first, and that was during the pandemic when the federal government approved billions of of dollars in, in federal aid and. And some of that was to go to directly to um, the unemployed or or for housing assistance, and a lot of times because processes weren't set up ahead of time because everything was happening so quickly, it took months and months for this federal assistance to actually make it into the hands of the people who needed it. And there's been a lot of post mortem on that, so I don't need to get into it. But that to me is just like a clear example of. The federal government passed the CARES Act and it was like, oh, my gosh, yay, this is so needed, job well done. And it's like, oh, no, 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 <laughs> that money actually needs to get to where it's supposed to go. And I think probably because of that, the American Rescue Plan funding, as well as in some of the other federal legislation uh, in grant funding for state and local governments, the Infrastructure and Jobs Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, all of the, that legislation has uh, has components of performance reporting, specifically ARPA, the American Rescue Plan funding, governments of, of a larger size, I'm forgetting the exact amount, I want to say it's 250,000 people or over, um, those larger governments are required to include performance reports on how they spent their, their ARPA funding. And then a lot of the other grant funding available in, in those other pieces of legislation contains uh, aspects of that. And so in, in general, the federal government is promoting this idea. And, and not surprising with this administration, there are a lot of people um, who were there during the Obama administration as well who, who were really into this. But uh, that to me, that's interesting, that push from the federal government to say, well, if you're going to spend federal grant money, you got to show us how it worked and, and where it went and, and all of that stuff. So while it could be prohibitive for some governments to, to take that on, uh, that is the downside, but overall, I think we should know where our money's going because it's 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 not federal government government money's at the end of the day. It's it's taxpayers' money. Yeah, for sure. It, it, it's a it's an age old debate. The question of if you're going to talk about what does it mean for for government and local government in particular to perform well, what what is a good outcome? What is an indicator of a job well done? Uh, at some level, you would think that that wouldn't be all that difficult to do because we have a general idea of what a well-functioning fire department looks like or what a well-functioning public works department looks like. Uh, but then when you get into the operational details and, and get into the differences from one jurisdiction to the next, it becomes very complicated very quickly. And so for that reason, we've had for years this debate on, on the one hand, advocates of uh, 
more and better reporting of performance saying, no, in fact, you can measure these things in relatively standardized ways and the, and it's worth it. The, the juice is worth the squeeze because we do care as taxpayers where these dollars are going. And then on the other hand, there's been an equally strong perspective that says that the variation from place to place and from service to service is just too great and that you might actually be doing more harm than good by trying to force taxpayers and elected officials to think about service delivery in standardized ways when they are really not amenable to that kind of standardization. You can make an excellent point there, Liz, that it very clearly the federal government right now is coming down in the in the former camp and not in the latter. <laughs> there have been attempts to try to do stuff like this over the years. There was a an, an effort for anyone who might be familiar with the history of something that the Governmental Accounting Standards Board experimented with years ago now. It's called Service Efforts and Accomplishments, or SEA. And the idea was just that. It was, you know, maybe maybe there is a place for this type of reporting on outcomes in the context of, say, financial reports or as a as a, as a related but separate report that you might see accompanying your, your annual financial reports. And uh, it was incredibly controversial. And after studying it for a little while, the Gatsby stepped away from it. But that that thinking has been out there for a long time, that, that maybe we are closer to that than not. And maybe the advantages of doing it far outweigh the disadvantages. Again, clearly the federal government is sometimes gently and sometimes not so gently nudging uh, a lot of movement in the direction of let's all do this and do the best that we can. Well, we are pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod, LaShawn Ross, who is the Human Resources Director for the city of Plano, Texas. LaShawn, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be joining you all today. Thanks for the invitation. LaShawn, you've had a really wonderful career in local government, having spent time in the human resources function, and then you were a deputy city manager for a while, uh, to only to retire and then find yourself uh, yeah. much like Michael Corleone pulled back into <laughs> local government. <laughs> if you could tell us just a, a little bit more about your journey, help our, our audience understand how you got to where you are today. Okay, I'll give you sort of the the long version and I'll try to shorten it and make it a little more concise. I started my local government journey um, in my hometown of Texarkana back in 1988. Uh, I knew in high school, strangely enough, that I wanted to be in human resources. Didn't really quite know why, but it just was something that stuck with me. I want to work in human resources. Was able to um, gain access to the human resources department, which at that time was called the personnel department at the city of Texarkana, Texas, as a temporary personnel secretary. There's another word that doesn't get used very much today. And uh, it just everything aligned. And, and, and I say everything aligned. There might have been some version of luck in that, but I think that it was a lot about preparation and trying to do my best um, at each level that then presented up other opportunities for me. So very shortly after going there, I found myself as the HR director and uh, worked there for just shy of 13 years and then came to the city of Plano in 2001 to be HR director here. Big move, big culture change, shift in, you know, moving from the only place that I had ever lived where my family was 
and uh, came here in 2001. And that then turned out to be one of the best decisions as well. Great place for, for my family and me and a great fit in terms of organizational culture. So worked in HR until 2011, went to the city manager's office, became deputy city manager, and yes, uh, retired in 2016 had an opportunity to go and work in some interim assignments and do a lot of training, professional development training with some other entities and had the opportunity to come back in uh, February of last year and really excited to be back. It's interesting how much we can recognize not only that our the environment around us has changed and maybe our organization has changed and, and societal expectations, but I find that I have changed quite a bit too, probably, and how I now fit into this environment as opposed to when I first arrived in 2001. So I'm really excited to be back, very humbled that I was invited to come back and looking forward to this next phase of the journey. Uh, sorry, I've already like decided I want to go off script. <laughs> and oh, and for our listeners, when LaShawn uses the word retired, she's she's air quoting herself because she if anyone looks her up on LinkedIn, <laughs> she, she was she was not sitting around eating bonbons and watching soap operas. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, she's a she's a busy lady. But uh, getting back to this idea of, of being able to change with an organization, we hear all the time about how state and local governments are suffering in this hiring crisis and that time to get with the times that employee uh, staffing levels are most likely not going to return to that same to the same robust levels they were mm-hmm. prior to to covid so how what, what's going on in plano with that since you are kind of right in the middle there with with the hr yeah it is really interesting that you know, we're, we are seeing definitely the same challenges with recruitment um, that are being seen around the nation. I certainly believe and respect the notions of the, the great resignation, the great reshuffling, um, the great reimagining, all of these words that we hear out there. So we're experiencing those, but we are embracing an additional body of research that really talks about how over the past decade or so, we've started to see that people are exercising options differently when it comes to career. I remember when I first arrived in Plano, uh, Tom Muhlenbeck, who was the city manager at the time, came to me and he said, LaShawn, I'm hearing all of this stuff about the graying of City Hall and and what are we going to do about these two million people, these baby boomers that are just going to run out of the door anytime now? What are we doing about succession planning? And we started taking a really hard look at that so that we could talk about being prepared. We could establish that talent pipeline so that whatever people decide to do, we could be prepared for how do we continue to move forward and not have performance gaps as a result of people leaving, whether it's through retirement, whether it's through going and exploring other career options, if it's just going and sitting on the beach and eating those bonbons you were talking about, Liz, (laughs) you know, people get to exercise their choices about how they spend their time. So I say that to say that the city of Plano has spent a lot of time on succession planning, leadership development, being very planful to make sure that we're strategic about preparing for what might happen so that our excellence that our citizens expect does not change regardless of what's going on. So in today's environment, we find that we are actually in a, in a better place in terms of this environment it's really forcing us to look at how do we meet people at the point of 
their desires for work, for career, for engaging them in the work environment. So where do we place announcements? How do we engage with our school district? Uh, we had a great meeting just recently with our career and technology professionals in, in the Plano Independent School District because we were talking about how we have great programs in our school district where students are being prepared for work, whether they choose to go to college or not. Maybe we need to do a better job of helping them know the robust number of career opportunities that are available right here in municipal government and how do we then you know bridge that gap between what the students are learning and perhaps how we could provide internships or lots more information about them coming right into the city outside of high school or after they go away, do we have something to, to bring them back to in terms of career choices? I was just in our new hire orientation this morning where I believe we had 11 new police officers and I was talking to a few of them asking, you know, what departments that they come from and all four of them, they had not worked in as police officers or in law enforcement before. Two of them were just out of, out of college and two of them were coming from other industries. And we hear that quite a lot, but it's not unlike what we heard in 2008 when we were having an economic downturn where some people were saying, hey, I'm looking more closely at local government because I, I've, I've had a lot of ups and downs and inconsistency in the industry where I've been. And I've heard that local government is more stable. So I, I think that all of these are opportunities, not for us to get panicked and fearful, but to look at this recruitment market that we have right now and to look at ourselves and say, are we doing an effective job about knowing how to connect with and engage um, our potential employees who are who are who are out there. Well, Sean, I know that one of your uh, big insights and and something that you have preached for a long time is is that a lot of the problems that we see within local government organizations uh, that might appear to be process or procedure problems are actually relationship problems. They're really people problems at the core. That I think has some big implications for those of us in the world of local government budgeting and finance, because of course, in budgeting and finance, we're all about procedure and, and process. And at the same time, I think you're encouraging us to maybe think very differently about the way that problems happen and the implications that a lot of those problems that we see have for how we think about making budgets and what it costs to deliver public services. From your standpoint as, a, as an HR expert, what advice would you give those of us in the budgeting finance world, as we think about challenges within organizations and, and how we can address those challenges with an eye toward the kinds of efficiencies and the kinds of process improvements and the kind of relationship improvements that we really want to try to pursue. Yeah, sure. That is such a huge conversation, I think, Justin, and one that is worthy of our time. We were just talking with our city manager's office not too terribly long ago. In fact, this has become something that we talk about quite a lot. And we're, say we're saying that we have to be more cognizant of the fact that some of the issues that are brought to the city manager's office, to HR, at any particular um, department throughout our organization they're, they're brought to us as operational issues, but what we find after reviewing and investigating a bit more, we find that they're really relational issues kind of masquerading as operational issues. Now, there's certainly um, an operational component. There's certainly a financial component because what we try and guard against 
at the city of Plano and what we try to structure our conversations around. And our city manager, Mark Israelson, is, is really great at doing this, is helping us to take a deep enough dive that we're going to get to the, the core issues. And, and at that core space, I think to your point, Justin, that's where we find that, okay, it's how we do our work that really determines how costly our processes are. And so when we think about waste in our system, oftentimes we look at what is most obvious. Oh my gosh, we spent this for this and you know we're not getting our return off of it or the prices are going up. But we don't I don't know that we think about how our processes and our ability to manage conflict, our ability to really state expectations and then manage and measure for those expectations. I'm not sure that we spend enough time talking about how that then relates to the the bottom line cost. So when we are talking about our budgets here in Plano, we're also talking about our strategies. Um, how are we planning for the environment that we're in right now? How are our processes supporting our outcomes? How are we making sure that we are being as efficient while being as effective as we need to be? This, we, we, our tagline is the city of excellence. And we talk a lot about the fact that, you know, we can hear excellence so much in, in any space in, in, our, in our community. But in Plano, we are very intentional about how we do our work and what excellence means and how that translates then to how we make purchases, to how we manage our um, inventory, how we manage our relationships, how we hire, how we train. One thing that, that I admire a great deal about Plano is that over the years, and we've had a couple of economic downturns, and I wasn't here during the pandemic, but I've stayed in contact with the organization. And what I know about this organization and as a resident of this community is that we continue to train. We continue to prioritize training and development and preparedness. It is so important that we look at how we do our work and how is that either benefiting or causing a bit of a strain on our budgets and, and the cost of running our organizations. Not to put you on the spot, but what is sort of like an under the radar example of, of, of waste beyond just the, oh, this costs a lot? I've got one for you, Liz. We talk about this quite a lot too in our organization. The whole job of a manager or a leader is to manage and to lead. And so one of the things we talk about, too, is that we we need to be certain as leaders and managers in any organization, and certainly at the city of Plano, that we are not treating our responsibilities as options. So with that as the backdrop, this is the example that I will share. It is that as a, let's use me, for example, as, as, as the director of our human resources and risk management function at the city of Plano, it is really important that I address the issues that need to be addressed so that if I am running into an issue where a member of our of our team is not performing um, at the level needed, then it's my job to make sure that we're giving that person the coaching, the mentoring, the support, that I'm clear about the goals, the performance expectations, that we're following up, that we're having conversations. 
it it may be that this person is not a good fit for the job or they're not willing to do the work. Whatever the case, we're not getting the outcome that we need. My job is not to ignore that and go and just ask for another position because it's easier. I don't want to have those hard conversations. I don't want to, to risk conflict. I don't want that person to be upset with me. I don't want to risk that person saying that I discriminated, that I harassed, that they're going to go to EEOC. All of those things are always possibilities. My job is to make sure that I have a compelling story to tell. Whenever someone's attorney, EEOC, or any other governing agency comes in, I need to be able to show the documentation to say that we were fair and we tried and we did. I did everything that I could. I did my part to help this person to be successful. But it, for whatever reason, after that, it did not work. I, I, I think that there is a danger, particularly in today's environment, where um, I see that employees are uh, having more of a voice and challenging whether it be policies or practices or being more demanding in terms of their the things that they're asking for for the workplace. And if managers are not feeling equipped and comfortable coming to the table to talk about resetting expectations um, to get the jobs done and not to overlook issues that need to be addressed and just go and try to find an easier way to address these things. Let's hire three more people because one person isn't getting it done. There's a cost to that. And not only is there a financial cost, there is a, uh, a culture cost to the organization. People want to be treated fairly, not just to see that everyone is getting equitable treatment, but people who are really doing the work don't want to sit and see others who are not doing the work just be brought along. And, and it's not fair to the person to allow them to just, you know, exist and we not bring them back to what's most important for the organization. The way that our city manager, Mark Israel, said, Mark Israel said, I'm sorry, says it a lot, is that he wants us to be cognizant at all times of how are we balancing ourselves as individuals and our departments and the organization? How are we prioritizing those things so that we can always come before our elected officials, our city council members, and explain what we've done, why we've done it, what the outcome was, and why we can stand behind that? So, LaShawn, just to change gears a little bit, I know we've uh, talked often on this podcast about technology and the role of technology in reshaping just about everything in state and local government, but especially the finance function. And clearly that's the case with the HR function. Talk a little bit about technological change in the span of your career and especially the, the role and the effect of technology as you've now come back to the city of Plano after COVID. I think that to the point of everything that you just described, Justin, I'm thinking back to conversations that we had 15 years ago about technology and the importance of trying to maximize the use of technology so that we can look organizationally. What is a system that can be brought into our organization that can serve multiple departments? And we can speak kind of the same language around that so that from a cost structure, as you all talked about before, 
we don't have HR with one system, finance with another system, public works with yet a different system um, when we talk about trying to be efficient with our dollars and also to understand better how to use these systems. I think that's certainly something that we were talking about years ago and we're still talking about today. In this highly digitized environment that we live in today, um, it, there's still the importance of finding what what is what is that that uh, saying that used to, it was about being high tech and high touch. I think they're still finding that balance of being able to do that. Uh, we have seen our onboarding system be changed to an entirely um, digital format where people are able before years ago they'd come in and they'd get their paper and they'd fill it out their dependent forms or their benefits forms and now everything is done online with them I'm finding that within our organization what happens with that sometimes is that staff feels that oh we're going to use this digital format and so this is going to remove that work from us and what and and, and now we're having to have those conversations that well no, I don't know that the intent was that all of your work in this would go away and you would find just a polished, finished product once the um, the candidate puts all of that information in. Does it really make less work for us on this side or does it change the way we work? And so we're having to manage expectations in this environment. We also find that it's challenging sometimes for people who have worked in a particular system for 5, 10, 15, 20 years to now be told that we're going to this different system and people will feel like, well, what does that mean for me? I have mastered this system. I don't want a new system. I'm not sure that I'm comfortable with a new system. Am I going to be as good with this new system? But that brings it back to what we were talking about a little bit before. Ultimately, we're trying to do what's best for the organization and how can we minimize cost and maximize service through even the these technological systems that we're bringing on board. Um, and then we still have to know how to listen and communicate as human beings, even with the use of these systems. We still have to talk through what are they going to mean for us? How are they going to change the way that we you know, manage paperwork, the way that we retain documents. Are we going to be paperless? And what does it mean to be paperless? And how do we make sure that we are only maintaining what we need and that we're looking at retention schedules? And I, I, I say all of that to say that it is so complex and we try as a society, I think we, we can sometimes promote the expectation that if we can just find the right system, it's going to fix everything and everything will be fine and we don't have to worry about it and it's going to make our job so much easier. There is such a need to make sure that we have completely vetted those needs and those expectations on the front end and that we brought all the stakeholders in together and that we've asked the questions that we need to ask to be sure that we are, that these systems will then serve our needs and we can adapt with our abilities and competencies and skills. The technology that's available for us today is very good, but what we find in our, in our department, in our organization, is that there's so much that we still have to do our work to determine, is this a system that we need, or am I just putting one system on top of another, on top of another in the interest of efficiency and finding that not only are we spending money unnecessarily in those scenarios, 
but I don't know that we're gaining efficiency of outcomes and work. So it does not replace the need to communicate. It does not replace the need to do our due diligence in determining what is the system intended to do for us and are we willing to do the work necessary to maximize what the system said it can do. Yeah, what what else? I mean, let let's say in this in a, you know, perfect world that kind of thing starts happening in local government. Uh, local government employees get to use their more critical thinking skills more often uh, because technology is kind of helping with some of that back-end office stuff. I mean, what what then for local government employees? What kind of do you see as, as the future there? I see as, I, I think this is really an exciting time for local government, first of all. The question is, what are we going to do with it? Are we going to seize these opportunities? Are we going to look at ourselves maybe a little bit differently that we are not less um, able to perform and use these skill sets and competencies and systems than our private sector neighbors? There has been for such a long time, I feel like, Liz, this thought that, um, well, you know, government really doesn't require um, as much. And, you know, you can go to the public, the private sector, and you can make a whole lot more money, you can do so many more things. And what we're finding is that we are competitive, period, not just with other cities, we are competitive. When we look at everything that we have to offer in local government, when we look at the competitive pay, when we look at the benefits packages, the total compensation, um, and all of the the access that we have to these systems uh, that help us to do our work. Um, I think that those things become very important to us telling our stories. And in terms of um, us being, you know, at the at the sort of leading edge of being able to compete, when you think about local government, we have a lot of compliance to deal with. We have a lot of regulations. We have a lot of laws. We have a lot of people to answer to. We are open government. People can make an open records request all day long, and we have to comply with that. So it speaks to how we do our work. So we can use these systems to, to, to help ourselves, but we've also got to keep in the backs of our minds that at the end of the day, we are accountable to our public. We have to, that, that should drive every decision that we make, every action that we take, every word that I write in an email, every everything that I do, I have to answer for that. And not just for LaShawn, I have to answer for that for the reputation of our human resources department, for the reputation of our organization, for the reputation of our community. So when it, when it comes to the, the financial part of it, it is all important, not just, not just about what we buy and when we buy it, but how do we make those decisions in the first place? How do we take care of, of the, the, the things that we're given, the resources that are provided to us through tax dollars? How do we care for those things? And how do we then tell that story to show not only why we purchased them, but why it was then a good purchase and we maximized how we were able to use those, those resources there's, there are so many opportunities for us right now, I think, as local governments to tell our story a lot better than we have been able to tell it, which is then going to engage us with people who may not have thought about local government as a career. But just like in our new hire orientation this morning, some people are, are, are learning about that and they're coming and then hopefully 
they tell someone and it just continues um, to grow in, in that light. I'm really excited about where we are right now. And I'm really humbled and appreciative that I've that I have the opportunity to be back now and see what we can do moving forward. LaShawn, lots of great insights so far. Anything else uh, that's just top of mind for you? Anything else that you think we ought to be uh, discussing in this space? I think the only other thing that I will say is there is a need for all of us to remember that personal accountability is part of the equation, regardless if I'm working for the University of Chicago, if I'm working for the city of Plano, wherever I'm working, if I'm working for, you know, Bucky's, it doesn't matter. Accountability, multi-directional accountability is part of the equation uh, for sustained success. We have to listen to each other. We have to communicate with one another. It's interesting to me that we use a lot of the right words. We talk about accountability. We talk about communication. We talk about listening. We talk about integrity. We talk about work ethic. And something happens. I talk about this a lot when I teach professional development classes. I most often talk to the group and I'll say something like, well, you know, we all seem to be on the same page in this room. We all seem to answer questions the same way. And we all seem to have the same level of commitment to managing potential conflict and talking things through and making sure that we're being um, financially accountable and that we're taking care of our relationships. And I always ask, what happens when the door opens and we go back into our lives? and the real work happens, and the real arguments are there, and the long-term disagreements are still there. What happens when we go back out there that, that more often we're not collectively able to use what we learn in the classroom and what we know to practice and make things better in a, in a broader sense? Um, back in in real life. And I I think about often uh, just this concept from a book called Think Again, that I was reading the book, and this concept is the thing that stood out with me the most. The writer talked about cognitive laziness. And when I think about that term and how how he described it in the book, and if I lay that aside, emotional intelligence and the importance of self-awareness and self-regulation and us really paying attention to how we are within ourselves and how I respond to you in terms of what I would like to get from you, um, the patience that it takes to do that, what motivates us. You know, do we use words like empathy, but are we really able to hear another person's truth when it so vehemently differs from what we believe and think and have experienced, but can we still be empathetic enough to hear that person's truth and respect their ability to share that truth? Can we find ways to be, to respectfully disagree? And I think that it, a lot of it comes back to that accountability piece. How are we all being accountable for these outcomes that we collectively say that we would like to see? LaShawn Ross, thank you so much for joining us here on the Public Money Pod. We really appreciate all of your wisdom and, and all of your insights. Really, really great stuff uh, for our listeners to think about the, the intersection of human resources, budgeting and finance, accounting, accountability, and lots of other really important topics. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. It has been my joy to spend these 
moments with you all today. It's been energizing for me. I think it's a conversation that uh, many of us should have much more frequently. So thank you so much for the invitation and for allowing me to spend some time with you today. So thanks again to LaShawn Ross for for coming on and talking so meaningfully about public administration and and her years of experience in in people people management. For for this week's kind of ripped from the headlines segment, we want to we want to end with I saw a story in in Bloomberg Tax that I wanted to talk about. It's called States Float New Taxes on Digital Ads, Social Media and Data Mining. As as we've mentioned previously on this program, Maryland had a digital tax that was passed. The governor vetoed it. Legislature overrode. Businesses took it to court. Courts ruled it illegal, essentially. Well, uh, a couple of states are back at it now, uh, trying their hand. They are Connecticut, Indiana, Massachusetts, and New York, so red and blue states. And they're looking at imposing new levies on e-commerce companies. This is something that something very similar along the lines. It's a tax on the revenue earned from digital advertising primarily would affect companies like Facebook, Amazon, and Google. So their their approach and their approach is even somewhat similar to Maryland's. It's they are a few are modeled after Maryland's law that imposes a, t- a tax of between two point five percent and ten percent on the annual gross revenue from digital ads. I guess what's interesting here is is there have been attempts for as long as I can remember to capture digital advertising revenues in some way or or really aiming at the fact that companies are making a ton of money off of consumers uh, through this advertising and through the use of, of data. And I remember a few a few years ago, maybe more than a few years ago now, it was uh, Gavin Newsom, one of his state of, uh, governor of California state of the state addresses was talking about this idea of imposing a data tax. Um, and he talked about essentially that, that governments shouldn't be, should, should have to pay for the fact that they earn money off of our data. And th- those are some, it, this is still an attempt. And, and it seems like states haven't quite figured out the, the right legal policy angle in there. But the fact that Maryland's was shot down in the courts and you've got a bunch of other states trying, I mean, to me, it says that this is something that is not going to go away. What do you think? Yeah, clearly. And it's, there's so much going on in the space now too, right? You can, we can hypothesize all day about why it's worth it for states to, to continue to go in this direction. But I think even compared to when the Maryland story was kind of definitively settled, a lot's changed, right? You now have the federal government actively, aggressively going after the big tech companies between what the federal trade commission is doing and the, some of the other antitrust uh, kinds of, of litigation that are being brought against these companies. I think there's a recognition that they have tremendous market power and the question of whether they're ultimately good for consumers is on the table in a big way. And I don't necessarily have a, a view on that, but it's very clear that the federal government is is pursuing these cases because they have a specific type of consumer well-being in mind and they, they think that they're going out and, and pursuing it. I think, so the, you, know, you have that and that's a big change in a relatively short time it might that politically it may not have been a good look for a governor or a state legislature to to pursue these kinds of of tax actions against big social media companies but now the the political sides certainly have shifted in that direction i think like the other part of it too is if you're a 
state or local government, you're kind of keeping options open here, right? I think the point you made is, I think an excellent one that part of the the turning of the tide against big tech companies is there's a recognition now among a lot of people that in fact, the users are the product, right? <laughs> that really what, what you're there doing is you're providing data, you're providing all sorts of usable uh, information for tech companies to then turn around and, and sell or use for advertising or whatever. And so the idea that we're going to tax it is a recognition that in fact, it's, you know, it's a privilege to do business and a privilege to have access to the information of the people who are using your product in a given state. And that's also, I think, a shift. Having a tax in place gives you options in the event that there is some sort of a, a you know, Justice Department settlement, antitrust action, Federal Trade Commission action, something like that, where maybe we get kind of a redefinition of what it is that these companies do. And then having a tax in place and adjusting a tax that's already in place is something very different than imposing a new tax once there's a new federal philosophy, so to speak, on what it is that social media companies in particular are doing and why what they do is good or is not good for consumers. So it seems like there's lots of reasons to go in that direction, and a lot of them are relatively new. I hadn't thought about that kind of redefining what it is these companies do. That that seems like the easiest way to get something like this done. I, I remember when uh, states still couldn't uh, collect uh, sales taxes from online only sales. Um, some of the states started trying to get around it by just changing some revenue, <laughs> some some regulations. Uh, you know, and ultimately, ultimately, all that went to the Supreme Court, and everyone can do it now. But uh, there are ways to kind of get around this this situation through through things like rules and regulations which i'm sure tax lawyers love reading but not not the average joe <laughs> <laughs> no that's ex that's exactly right it's uh our friends in the in the legal community when it comes to public finance are, are endlessly creative in the space and again it's always in service of some broader goal which is you know we we want and we need our state and local tax systems to efficiently and effectively capture you know, revenue that reflects where commerce is actually happening. And so it's this constant evolution. Sometimes um, sometimes that evolution speeds along much faster as we're seeing in this space right now. And sometimes it's it doesn't move along very fast at all, but it is always moving forward and it's always interesting to watch. I think this article that you brought to us is a, a really, really good example of a one of the more recent iterations and one that we'll, you know, we should all be watching over the next weeks and months. The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy and is made possible in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual, Cumberland Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. To learn more about the center, check out our website, municipalfinance.uchicago.edu. If you'd like to ask a question for our extra credit segment, send a voice memo to publicmoneypod at uchicago.edu. To see more of Liz Farmer's work, visit her website, farmersfieldonline.com, and her Substack, which is substack.lizfarmer.com. And you can also find her at Twitter, at LizFarmerTweets. And thanks, as always, to our esteemed producer, Eric Gaber. 
If you like the podcast, be sure to follow us, drop a review, and tell your network. That's all for now. We'll catch you next time.